Hey, OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is an episode we released a little while back on our Biblical World podcast. Did you know we had that podcast? And wanted to re-release it here on OnScript. Hope you're all having a good holiday season, good Christmas, and wish you all a happy new year. We'll be out with new episodes in the new year, both on OnScript and Biblical World, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support and uh, encouragement throughout the year. Well, I'm delighted today to be talking with Jason Staples, who has a fabulous book, The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. It I highly recommend it to our listeners. And so it's, it's a real treat for me, Jason, to spend some time talking with you. Thanks for coming on the Biblical World Podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invite, and uh, really the the pleasure is mine here. I'm I've uh, I'm I've listened actually to every episode in the back catalog, so uh, this is uh, this is really a delight. Oh well, great, great. And before we dive into your book, I was looking a little bit at your history, and uh, it it seems that before you finished your PhD and are this thriving New Testament scholar, you had like a, a earlier career, you worked in sports media. So I'm trying to find the connection between what you're doing now and sports media. Tell us a little bit about what that sports media job was all about. And so uh, actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually still working in sports media. Um, that's, uh, that's actually my primary source of income since I haven't been able to learn, land a permanent job uh, in academia and uh, can't feed my family on adjunct income, so uh, I, I actually make you know most of my living by uh, doing uh, football analysis, that sort of thing, for uh, a variety of different outlets. Uh, and that, I mean, I got into that basically as a uh, as a sort of as an accident because I got asked to do it early in grad school by some contacts that I had from playing college football. It was like, hey, you know, you you know, you write well, you you know, you can explain this stuff. Why don't you, you know, you want to do this for us? And it's like, oh, sure. And uh, then, you know, I, I had a lot of media experience on the both the production side and in front of camera and that sort of thing going into college. Uh, and so that allowed me some of the, the flexibility and uh, made it easy to, to build on some things as that as I got more opportunities. So really, there's not a whole lot of links between what I'm doing on the you know, scholarship side and that other than that, I'm really driven to try to explain complex things in a way that helps people understand what's going on, you know, to try to wrap our minds around different things. And, and that's really try, what I try to do in a lot of my coverage uh, on that side is to, is to basically explain like, here's why this happened. Here's the hidden things that you as a fan may not see that actually contributed to what, what happened here. So that's kind of been my role on that side of things. And, uh, and, you know, that's the kind of common link. Yeah. Well, I, I was really excited. You were a Seminole. Now I have to say my cousin's husband and their son is a Gator, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> I grew up, uh, I was born in Pittsburgh, grew up a Steeler fan as anybody is. I mean, it just is, it's a birthright. So I'm a Steeler fan and my name is Lynn with no E on the end. <laughs> and so I felt a real kindred spirit with Lynn Swan, the wide receiver. And I think that was your position, wasn't it? Wide receiver. It was. And Lynn used to actually come into our, uh, into our, and work out in our weight room whenever they would cover games and all that. And and so I, you know, I got to chat with him years ago, you know, back when he would cover, cover our games, you know, we'd be in there working out the week of, and he'd come in and, you know, ask all, all sorts of different things. And I love Lynn Swan. He's a great guy. Man, I felt like, you know, I was a kid at the time, but I really felt that there was probably some distant shared ancestor. Now, if you look <laughs> at me <laughs> and you look at Lynn Swan, you would say, no, Lynn uh, Koic, you are completely wrong on that. But man, did I idolize him. And I, I have since thought, wow, when I get to heaven and I have my raised and glorified body, will I be able to catch footballs like he did? Ah, oh, wouldn't that be so cool? And then when you're tackled, it doesn't hurt because you have your raised and glorified body. And anyway, right now, uh, for you who cannot see the podcast, Jason is <laughs> looking at me slightly in disbelief, like, oh, my word. But I'll tell you, just this morning in the Wall Street Journal, I was reading an essay by um, another sports writer. Her name is Joanna Cohen. 
And she talks about her hero being Joe Montana and growing up, really admiring him and the work ethic, you know, and I, I thought, yeah, I remember Jerry Rice and his work ethic. And that really, that inspired me. And Lynn Swan inspired me to be, well, the, the athlete that I could be given the uh, gifts and talents such as they are <laughs> that God has, has given me. But anyway, yeah. So when I saw that, that now I didn't even know that, you know, Lynn Swan. Okay. Now, oh, now I'm really jealous. I'll have to deal with my jealousy here. <laughs> well, uh, and it also says uh, in your, uh, in your background that you're a voice actor, um, which does seem to go with your media interests. And, and I saw way back in, in your early studies, you did explore a little bit um, cla the classical arts uh, like play and theater. Um, do you, does that hold any interest to you or do you feel like media today and the ways that art was communicated in the ancient world, you know, are they connected at all? Do they have any overlap or is it just really a brand new day? Well, I think the the general way that people communicate and what uh, resonates with human beings has really never changed. I mean, the technology is really what's changed. Uh, and so, you know, you read Aeschylus or you read uh, Sophocles or, or, you know, some of these or Euripides, some of these these great uh, uh, tragic poets and, and playwrights from uh, classical Athens and their stuff still resonates with us. I mean, in the same way that the Bible still continues to resonate because, you know, people, we are still people and these story, you know, great stories and, and, uh, communication still works. Uh, the difference is that we have different tools that we can use to, uh, be more immersive than what they had and certainly more than reading on a page. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, that's, that was something I, uh, you know, Fl Florida state had a really, really good classics department. And, uh, I was fortunate to take a, advantage of a lot of that, uh, spending a lot of time, uh, learning, you know, doing a lot of Greek translation of things like, uh, uh, Aeschylus, you know, for example, who really, I, I learned very quickly that Greek is a lot of different languages, not one, because I got into first day of that class and, uh, it was actually the day after drop ad because there'd been a, a, a quirk in the schedule. Uh, and I, I jumped up a level to, to try to tackle that. I was like, yeah, I feel good about my Greek. And then I got in there and he tells us to sit down and start, you know, translating on site. This is an upper level class. And I looked at my page and I actually closed the book again, looked at it again and was like, do I have the right thing here? I didn't recognize the language. It's a completely different thing. So, um, you do get a little bit of a different complexity there, but, uh, uh, that that class <laughs> taught me a lot just in terms of uh, my limitations. I'll tell you that. But you persevered, and it obviously is a is something you love is to get into the languages, get into or the the ideas conveyed by the languages. No, no doubt. Yeah, that's uh, that's central. I think you know I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to really uh, to learn as much of not just the biblical languages, but any opportunity we have to learn other language is, is good because it's a whole new way of thinking. Uh, every language is a whole different process of seeing the world. Uh, just the grammar and the way that we construct our, our thoughts helps construct our thoughts. Uh, and so when we learn how other people are communicating and, and step into that different kind of cultural setup that, that language gives us, we, we can understand differently. And, and I think that's really, really critical uh, and that's why I'm, I'm sort of disappointed at times when I see certain programs de-emphasizing language uh, requirements and language uh, 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 or discouraging students from taking as much language, because I think we would do better to to do more on that emphasis, uh, to emphasize language more rather than less. But again, I, and this is a big value for me and it's not as much for for some others. So, yeah, there's definitely a pragmatism that enters into uh, programs um, that uh, in, in learning language, at least for me, takes a long time and it's difficult and you kind of wonder, okay, where's the payoff? But um, I would say, and this will be my segue into talking about your book, your love of language and the way that it helps you to think and maybe think differently, really shown in this book, The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. 
it, it's just fabulous how you uh, explore such a wide range of literature, and we'll get into that for sure. But before we do, can you just give us the general argument of, of your book? Yeah, um, really, this book has sort of two distinct but really closely related theses. Um, so there's sort of the first half thesis of the book, and then the second half that builds on it. Uh, and and so the first one is really that, although basically all modern scholarship has presumed uh, that in the Second Temple period, so that's the time after the destruction of Solomon's Temple. So basically, I kind of start right around there. And, and up through the around the first century uh, CE. So most scholarship has presumed that in that period, when you hear people say Israel or Israelites, that is synonymous with the category of the Jews. So that is, you know, in Greek, Yehudaioi or, uh, you know, Hebrew, the Yehudim. Uh, and also those two, those two terms are also synonymous, but a little bit of different nuance from Hebrews. So that essentially, you know, you know, you can kind of just vary those terms. And often it actually in scholarship, you see people uh, alternate these kinds of terms for style so that, you know, you're not just saying the Jews, the Jew, you talk about, well, Israel, et cetera. Uh, and the thing is, there's, there's, there were some quirks of how these words were, these terms and categories were used in the literature of this period that really stood out to me on saying, you know, it doesn't really seem like they are exactly synonymous. So that was the, that was really what I, uh, what I'm working at in the first part of the book. And, and my thesis there is that they're not, in fact, none of these, these three terms are not in fact synonymous, uh, but instead Jew is, or the Jews are a subset of a larger category, Israel, so that they're not identical. They're not coextensive. Uh, and specifically Jews are the subset that is derived from the Southern kingdom of Judah, right? So Jew is really just a way of saying Judahite, which is how the term originated, right? And my argument is that that never really disappears. That distinction never goes away in the second temple period. And that Israel remains throughout the second temple period, a larger category that includes those who are associated with and descended from the Northern kingdom of Israel who are not from Judah, which means that by definition, you have non-Jewish Israelites through the whole period or people who could be categorized as such that not all Israelites are Jews, although Jews are also Israelites. Uh, and so that's the, that's the first sort of thesis. And then, you know, Hebrew, I also treat in there as well, although a little bit less in that uh, Hebrew is, and I agree with uh, a couple others who had proposed this uh, before me, that it appears to be uh, consistently treated as a linguistic term throughout the second, te second temple period. So every time we see it used, at least in Greek literature and, and, and also in some other, uh, some other uh, cases as well, it seems to be referring to, say, Semitic speakers who may or may not necessarily be Jewish, uh, as opposed to, say, speakers of Greek or something else. And that seems to be what the term comes to mean, although it probably meant something a little bit different earlier on, you know, in the, in the first uh, first temple period, you know, iron age, the Apiru and all these things. So that's the first part of the book is basically that these three terms are, are actually distinct and specifically that you have a set and subset relationship between Israel and Jews. Uh, and then once we recognize that, that, that sets up the second thesis of the book, that once we recognize that, that, uh, that, that distinction works that way, we can understand a lot of prophetic or restorationist texts more clearly. So essentially that second thesis is that a large number of early Jewish texts uh, show an expectation that God is going to restore the whole people of Israel. And if we read that language carefully, they're not saying God's going to give you know, political independence to the Jews. They're, at, they're expecting something significantly larger than that. They're expecting that both Jews and the non-Jewish Israelites from the other tribes that are associated with the Northern Kingdom most of whom are then in, understood variously as having been scattered among the nations. They're out there in some fashion, and there's not exactly a, 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 a you know, a, a monolithic sense of exactly what's what's gone on with those those tribes. But there is that expectation that there's going to be this set of non-Jewish Israel that's going to join the Jewish portion of Israel 
as a, uh, in this 12 tribe restoration when God actually restores his people as promised. And that this expectation is really common in the second temple period, never really disappears, uh, whether in the land or in the diaspora. And so th- those two theses really comprise the, the, the sum total of the book. Yeah, no, and, and it was fascinating to me. Um, and we'll, we'll dive into various pieces of this. Um, let, me, let me ask you, though, in, in terms of it, I know we can't get into the minds of diaspora Jews per se. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm going to ask you about that. Um, if you're a Jew living in the first century BC in Alexandria or some uh, city in Asia Minor, and you have this restoration eschatology, how does that fit with your own settledness, if if you will, in in your life, you know, in the city? How, how does that work out? And I, I say this because I was raised uh, on the theory that diaspora Jews are comfortable in their diaspora. They're they're comfortable in their identity as those who follow, you know, the one true God, the God of of the Bible. Um, but you know, they're they're not desiring something more. So, can you talk a little bit about where you would fall in that whole discussion? Yeah, and that, that's uh, you know I've, I've got a full chapter on this because this this wound up being something that was really an important uh, question to address because this this has been uh, become an increasingly popular way of thinking about this that well you know once you get Jews that you know the sort of period of exile ends and you have you have the ability to return to the land at least you know in theory and if you stay in exile well that means that you've obviously found a home in exile and. You know, Jerusalem may be the motherland, but, you know, the exile is a patria and, you know, Jews thrive in exile. It's not like Jews are constantly regarding themselves as in captivity throughout, you know, this this whole period. And I think that's fundamentally right. But that also doesn't negate the expectation of something better in the future. And I think that's the part that that has kind of gotten forgotten about this. And uh, actually, in the chapter, one of the comparisons that I make is... uh, you know, modern evangelical Christians, for example, in the United States are, you know, the United States is home. They, they, they're not, you know, imagining that they're, uh, you know, enslaved or, or, or exiled in some way, you know, they're American citizens who, uh, you know, get elected and, you know, run government and all these sorts of things. And, you know, Jews all over the, all over the diaspora are, are thoroughly involved in, in, and enmeshed in their, in, in these societies. But at the same point, fairly large number of evangelical Christians expect that Jesus is going to return and that there's going to be this radical shift in how the government of the world works and uh, that, you know, the and, and do characterize their current state in the world as quasi-exilic awaiting this, you know, revelation of the Messiah who's going to come and, and, and bring this better thing. So just because things are going fairly well, and just because it's home for the present doesn't mean that you don't expect this massive, great restoration that's going to be a radical shift and, and, and an improvement. And that's, I think, what we do see throughout this period. And the other thing, I mean, others have, have observed this as well, but you know, the other thing we can't forget is that even though Jews thrived throughout this period in, say, Alexandria or whatever, they, there still were these punctuated moments of persecution and pogroms against against Jews. I mean, there have been historically. And when you're in Alexandria and suddenly the wrong people come into power and decide, you know, we're going to persecute the, the Jews and, you know, the Jewish quarter is going to be uh, embattled. That's the sort of thing that then obviously reminds everybody of this this eschatology that's there that brings that more to the fore. So, you know, when you have a diaspora revolt in the, in the, uh, you know, 100 teens, for example, there's something that's underlying that, that's beyond just the political stuff. So I think that this, that the idea that you have sort of a positive diaspora Judaism that drops any sort of eschatological or restoration expectations misses the complexity of how humans actually work in terms of theology, held theology and expectations for the future with you know the realities of every day just because you expect a good future doesn't mean you don't think things are you know pretty okay for you right now and that you're living in the present so 
I, I try to draw a distinction between that, that there remains a, you know, when you read, when you read the prophets in the synagogue and the, in the diaspora, you're still hearing the promise of restoration, but then you go back and, you know, in the day to day, you're still, you know, selling fish in the market and, you know, it's a pretty good life. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that, that I'm trying to draw a distinction from. And I think, uh, historically there's been too much of a sort of swing on one end or another where, you know, Jews are all in sort of huddled enclaves wait, awaiting the Messiah in darkness, or, you know, Jews are happily out there, you know, having forgotten any notion of restoration. And I think it's, it's more nuanced and complex than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I really appreciated about your book, one of the many things that I really appreciated was your uh, history of interpretation, uh, especially the more recent interpretation like around the term Jew, Udiah, Udiah, excuse me, and and how our own ideas, certainly the rise of Nazism, and and that affected the interpretation of that term, and even more broadly, and maybe you can comment on this even more broadly in the 1800s with the rise of pogroms in various places, and then. The, within the Jewish community itself, various understandings of Zionism and just you know that kind of all over the map with that. You dive in pretty deeply into just how New Testament or scholarship in general would have looked at the term Eudios. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I, I think some of the ways we've thought about that still can influence our expectations for today. Yeah, I, I think. Uh... Interpretation always involves the perspective of the interpreter. There's no way around that, right? And I'm not an exception to that either. Uh, but it's it's critical that we're always examining our own perspective to see where we might be uh, adulterating the data, you know, adulterating our interpretation of the data. And and that's one of the things that I I, I really focused on at the beginning of this uh, and early in this pro- project. I mean, this was something that uh, I I'd come to the conclusion that that these terms were related in a subset manner. But then when I started sort of pulling out the thread of where the, the default sort of positions were in the field and how those had been established, I was surprised that to, to learn that basically uh, the most common way of thinking about this, and that is that uh, the term Yehudias or, or Jew is an inside is an outsider term that is used by outsiders and then insiders sort of, use that term by uh, accommodation. And Israel or Israelite is a term that's, you know, the preferred insider term of Jews. Uh, you know, I found this and I kept seeing it cited and, and or uh, repeated and, and eventually found, you know, found the source. And the source is actually for this theory is uh, the TWNT or the TDNT, the, the uh, Theological Dictionary of the, uh, of the New Testament, specifically an article by K.G. Kuhn, uh, where he makes this this case. He says, you know, these terms are used and there does seem to be a different nuance. They're used in different contexts. And here's how it seems to work that, you know, Israel, Israelite is the preferred nomenclature of the people themselves. But when they're talking with outsiders or when outsiders are referring to them, you get the term Jew or Yudaios. And, you know, this term, he, he comments, you know, the, the the outsider term you know sometimes appears with this sort of depreciatory nuance it's a it, it kind of has a uh, a negative coloring at different points and of course some others who had come along before me I mean uh, Shia Cohen observes this and and uh, Maurice Casey has a brilliant article on this that I I, I uh, uh, that really helped me on this they observe that there's actually no ancient evidence of anybody using that term in a, in a derogatory or, or, or depreciatory fashion. It's like, you know, well, he, he makes this comment, but it doesn't, well, why would he make that comment then? Well, if you go to Germany in the 1930s, when Kuhn wrote that article, that's exactly how things worked to call someone a Jew, Juden, you know, to say Jude or, you know, Juden, that, that was a slur. It, it actually became used in that way. Whereas the various German communities, they preferred to be called Israelite communities or Israelitische Gemeinde, right? You know, this is this is what uh, what the way that they worked. So, what I basically observe is that Kuhn superimposes the perspective that he's familiar with, where 
you know, if you want to show a show a Jewish person respect in the Germany of the 1930s, you refer to that person as an Israelite. If you want to refer to them in, uh, you know, sort of that derogatory way, you know, as an outsider, then you refer to them as Jews. Uh, and actually, there's, you know, the, uh, uh, there's a book by uh, by uh, Baker uh, who uh, observes that this, you know, this coloring still still applies to some degree in the in the modern world. Uh, and so, you know, that unfortunate reality, I think, caused Kuhn, who, uh, you know, sort of burying the lead here a little bit, but Kuhn himself was one of the first thousand people to join the uh, the Nazi Sturmabteilung and join the Nazi party, I think it was in 1933. I mean, he was early on this uh, and wrote for uh, the, you know, Institute for the Study of the Jewish Question, you know, the the, the Nazi anti-Jewish uh, think tank. You know, this this is not, he's not an unbiased, impartial observer here. And the model that he sets up that doesn't actually accord with the data is completely in keeping with what you would expect if someone from his era with his ideological bent happens to have superimposed their own perspective on the texts. And so no wonder it doesn't actually work. And, you know, there, there'd been a generation of, of scholars who'd said, well, you know, this doesn't seem to work exactly right, but you know, this is the best model we have. And my, my case was, it's just not a good model and it's got very shoddy foundations and there's a better way to, make this work in terms of to understand how these terms relate that is i think more robust without taking this anti-jewish modern perspective and and assuming that the that ancient people did things the same way right right no and i and i love how you really dive deep then into the evidence the primary sources and and let's turn there now i talk a little bit about your findings with josephus i dove into this uh in your book cuz i had the question in front of me about the Samaritan woman. And I was thinking about, uh, about her and her situation. And so that, that was kind of my smaller question as I approached your discussion of Josephus. But talk a little bit about what you found in his writings that support your position. Yeah, and well, and just thinking about the Samaritan woman, the interesting thing, the comment that leads that off in, in the Gospel of John is, well, for Samaritans have no dealings with Jews, or Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? Uh, and what that means is Samaritans aren't Jews, right? Which is interesting because in modern scholarship, a lot of times the default has been to treat Samaritans as a sort of sect of Judaism. But John, the gospel, John certainly does not think that Samaritans are a sect of Judaism. It thinks there's something else. They're not Jews. And we find the same thing in Josephus. And so to step back a little bit in terms of how Josephus understands this whole thing, uh, the book, the, and his, uh, Antiquities really helps explain or helps outline this larger trend in that he uses, uh, say, the term Israel or Israelite uh, 188 times in the Antiquities. Uh, so not a ton, but, you know, pretty, pretty frequent. And then uh, Hebrew, Hebraeus, a similar, you know, similar amount, a little bit more than that. Uh, but the interesting thing is that all of those uses of Israel or Israelite appear in the first 11 books of antiquities, which is a 20 book work. And he never uses it again after book 11. And interestingly, he uses Jew, Yehudaios, uh, 1188 times approximately in, in, in the, uh, in, in his corpus as a whole. Uh, but it, that word only appears 28 times in the first 10 books of the antiquities. So if you look at a graph and I included it in the book, just because it's so extreme of his use of these terms, there's this crossing point at, at book 11, where suddenly he picks up the term Jew and drops the term Israel or Israelite. And you go, well, why does he do this? Well, you realize that book 11 happens to be the, the exilic period. And he tells you in book 11 why he's shifting terminology when he says, well, from the time that they went up from Babylon, they were called by this name, Eudias, after the tribe of Judah. And he says, since that tribe was the prominent one to come from those parts, both the people themselves and the country have taken their name from it. And he explains that from then forward, he's, he's talking about Jews. But before that, he's talking about the Israelites. And sometimes he refers to people from Judah in particular as Jews. 
So why does he drop Israelite? Well, he says, when this is when in his discussion of the people who returned in the time of Ezra, he says, when these Jews learned of the king's piety towards God and his kindness toward Ezra, they loved him and they many took their possessions and went up uh, to Babylon, desiring to go down to Jerusalem. But the whole people of Israel, that is, you know, Hapas, the, the people of Israel, all the people of Israel remained in that land so that only two tribes came to Asia and Europe and are subject to the Romans. But the 10 tribes are beyond Euphrates until now. And there's still a boundless multitude, not to be uh, th- th- an inestimable number, right? Which has a couple of things that are interesting there. One is he says, well, there's only two tribes of Israel that are subject to the Romans, just so you know. And by the way, there's a bunch of them over there. And there's this kind of veiled thing that, 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 that he's, there's this undercurrent throughout Josephus uh, that, that I, 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 uh, I highlight that there's this undercurrent of like Roman rule is for now, as he says in Jewish war, <laughs> what's going to come after that. Well, he stops short. He tells that he tells of the prophecy of Daniel that gets you up to the Romans and then stops short and says, and he has a few other things to say as well, but I'm not going to tell you because, you know, that'll belabor the point or whatever you go. Well, what else does that passage say? Well, it's about the rock coming down and smashing that kingdom. And He's not telling you exactly what he's kind of hinting here. When those 10 tribes come in, the Romans will not be able to stand because this is going to be the real restoration. And so Josephus still has, it's subtle, but throughout his work, he still seems to hold this expectation of there's going to be a restoration and it's going to be a big one, but it's going to have to be initiated by God. And that's what the rebels got wrong. And so he advocates for this kind of, he, you know, he sees himself as a new Jeremiah and he advocates for sort of Jeremiah's advice. Seek the welfare of the city where you are. Eventually God's going to take care of this. And, and so all of that goes to show that he has, he, he understands the difference between the tribes that, that are limited to Judah. He emphasizes the difference between them and the whole 12 tribe polity and, you know, sees this thing as a, you know, uh, with a uh, restorationist, you know, sort of undercurrent. And then he also has discussions of the Samaritans, which, you know, brings us to that other part. And it's really interesting there because, of course, the Samaritans, as he acknowledges, claim descent from the northern kingdom, right? They claim to be from the Joseph tribes of Ephraim and and Manasseh. And Josephus acknowledges that this is their claim. And he doesn't call them Jews. (laughs) He says, look, when it's in their best interest, they ally with us Jews and they pretend to be, you know, sort of. Are, are, are part of us. But, you know, when it doesn't suit them, they don't do that. And, you know, lots of Jews have gone over to them when, you know, when they're lawbreakers and everything else. But throughout, he, re- he portrays them as something else, as something other and distinct from Jews, who he refers to them as Hebrews in certain cases, because they actually are Hebrews. They're, you know, they're Hebrew Aramaic speakers. And he refers to their claim as from Israel, but he doesn't refer to them in, in, in this way as being Jewish. And that, again, this is you know sort of your microcosmic example of the distinction that is pretty consistently made uh, within this period between these categories. And the Samaritans are, are I think, uh, especially once you look at how Josephus does it, you look at them outside evidence in terms of how the, the Samaritans themselves use their use this language and then you know, the gospel of john and all sorts of other things you realize wait a second the samaritans are claiming to be israelites but not jews so there must be this category that is not jewish but israelite and jews never say that the samaritans even claim to be jews but they do acknowledge that they claim to be israelites so there's again recognition of this and so that should have us thinking about a little bit more of a diverse picture of what it means to, to be a Yahweh, to worship the God of Israel and to associate yourself with Israelite identity or Israelite status in this period. Right, right. Yeah. And it, you mentioned in uh, just briefly, and I want to circle back to it, you mentioned Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, because those are the post-exilic, we call them, right? The, the exile, they came back. Uh, well, how how do you read Ezra Nehemiah through your lens? Yeah, that's a really, I mean, th- and that's a critical point as well. And, you know, yes, they came back. But the question is, who are they, right? And as Josephus, you know, said in the quote that I, uh, that I, I just, uh, I just mentioned, uh, they went up from Babylon, but who were they? He says, well, it was the two tribes that came to, 
that, that, that returned and the rest of Israel stayed over there. So he draws that distinction. And that's one of the first things that, that I highlight in my chapter on this, where when you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, you've got this Israel language and there's this constant sort of, uh, uh, overt expectation, overt language of Israelite restoration. But at the same point, very early in the book, it tells you up front that you don't actually have all of Israel returning. Who returns? You get leaders from three tribes along with a, a group of others, and then notable by their absence are everybody else, right? It tells you that, you know, well, these are the people from Levi, these are the people from Judah, and these are the people from Benjamin. And then you're kind of expecting like, okay, where's the rest? And instead of that, you get conflict between the people from Samaria and the people from Jerusalem. And you get, you know, all these problems that keep creeping up in the, in the narrative that are suggesting that this uh, reunified, restored Israel has not happened. And, you know, uh, there are a couple of, of, of really strong examples of this that, that show this where, um, you know, first of all, you have that some from Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites arose and returned. That's what it tells us. It doesn't tell us all Israel returned. Secondly, when you compare, for example, the dedication of the second temple with the dedication of Solomon's temple, of which it's aware. I mean, it models to some degree. It's telling on 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 what happens with Solomon. Well, Solomon's temple, you have, you know, they, they offer 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. There's no sin offering that's offered. And the glory of God descends in fire and smoke, fire and cloud, right? The cloud of glory. In the second temple, you have a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. And then it concludes not with a grand uh, prayer, like with, with Solomon and the glory descending, but with the elders of the Jews in verse six, uh, in uh, six fourteen, offering a sin offering of 12 male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. And the juxtaposition between the elders of the Jews, that is the three tribes that returned, offering 12 goats corresponding to the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, that underscores the absence, the lack of the others. And what this, what I argue is that you're seeing in Ezra the, this idea that this sin offering, and it's not accidental that it's a sin offering, is sort of an effort to initiate the rest of the restoration. And that these elders are seeing themselves as as kicking off the the, the hopes of this revival, uh, and they serve as that sort of vanguard on behalf of the rest of Israel. But the rest of Israel doesn't return. And you know Nehemiah uh, in his prayer says, "We are slaves. We even even this day we are slaves." Uh, you know you have uh, Ezra refers to thanks for having given us this little reviving. This is not the language of. The, the prophetically promised restoration. This is the language of, well, you know, we've got, you know, it's better than it was, but, uh, and, and by the end of the book, you know, you have failure of basically every thread, you know, the, te the temple has been, uh, has been used for impure purposes. Sabbaths are being broken. The people continue to intermarry and Nehemiah in the process of all this says that you guys are adding on to the wrath on Israel. And, well, if you're adding wrath on Israel, then that presumes that wrath is still on Israel. So what, what, what this tells me is that the way that we have typically read Ezra and Nehemiah as a sort of triumphal, like this is the end of the exile. And now, you know, Israel has returned. And now from now forward, we can talk about this restored community. That's not what Ezra and Nehemiah actually depicts. It depicts a return of some people that is definitely not the promised return because the people are still dealing with sin and you don't have the rest of Israel having returned uh, and you don't have the unity between North and South. So despite the best efforts of its protagonists, and it actually, I think is kind of critical of its protagonists in certain areas. There's a subtle critique of some of the things that they do. So, uh, and, and interestingly, then if you look at the history of, of interpretation of Ezra Nehemiah and the second temple period, Nobody interprets it as the end of the exile. Nobody. There's no Jewish document that I found from the Second Temple period that looks at Ezra, the events of Ezra and Nehemiah and says, well, that's where the exile ended. Instead, you get stuff like in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls where, you know, they point to that and they go, yeah, that definitely wasn't it. Or you get, you know, uh, First Enoch where you have the, the animal apocalypse and a few people return, but, you know, it's, a, it's an adulterated uh, and flawed 
uh, phenomenon. And there's huge critique of this. And, you know, in Tobit, the, you know, well, they're going to return, but it's not going to be the thing. And then, you know, God's really going to do the big thing at the end. You know, it's the end, the end prayer of Tobit does that. So this is how it's consistently portrayed. And we modern interpreters have just sort of tended to brush all that by and go, look, it's the restoration. And it's just not the way that anybody's reading that. Right, right. Now, um, and I'm glad you mentioned Dead Sea Scrolls and First Enoch, because I know you look at just such a range of material, a range of genre. You also talk about the Maccabees a little bit, and especially maybe First Maccabees, which some of our, well, all of our listeners are incredibly smart, and some of them will be thinking about, well, what about First Maccabees, though? So talk a little bit about whether those works challenge the conclusions that you've drawn. Yeah. First Maccabees is really in a lot of respects, the, uh, it's the, it's the exception that, and I think of it as the exception that proves the rule in terms of how all this works. Uh, because first Maccabees is the one book that we find that repeatedly uses Israel or Israelite terminology to talk about the people you know, to talk about Jews, contemporary Jews in this, what we refer to as the post-exilic period. And, uh, and you got to wonder why, why is this, why, why does this do what, you know, so many others don't, uh, and here, here's where I ultimately built on, uh, Jonathan Goldstein, uh, in, in particular, uh, where he observes that, that, that first Maccabees is it's propaganda literature. It's very much trying to boost the, the cred of the, uh, of the Hasmonean house. And, uh, and my case is that it's not just Israel language. You get a lot of anachronistic language throughout first Maccabees in general, right? You get, it talks about, you know, the Philistines and the Canaanites and, you know, it, it recycles a lot of biblical imagery that would be biblical imagery to its own audience in, you know, in, in the time that it's being written to portray its Hasmonean protagonists as essentially uh, replicating the heroic and quasi messianic deeds of its, of, of David and of, you know, historical Israel. And, uh, and, and my argument is that, that first Maccabees is actually pushing for the Hasmoneans and the Hasmonean kingdom as the sort of first stage of the restoration. And that, you know, as you get the Hasmonean expansions into the North, right. And you get some of the, 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 the forcible conversions of the Edomites and things like that, that happen, uh, in that era, that this is a political program that is specifically trying to lay out and attempting to bring about the restoration that is expected. They're they're trying by their own. Uh, it's it's part of their own uh, propaganda, part of their own uh, uh, aims here to replicate a a restored Israel, to be the restored Israel. And I think First Maccabees is using this language as a way to legitimate what's happening here, that this is the initiation point of the restoration. And I think there's a lot of uh, early Jewish literature, and, and again, the Dead Sea Scrolls among them, that these communities are seeing themselves as the beginning point, like the restoration is happening and it's starting with us right now. And I think First Maccabees is a good example of that, where it's not like the Hasmonean kingdom called itself Judah, right? Judiah. But they had the hopes of becoming this Israel that is the language, this larger language that first Maccabees is using of the, these great events. And uh, I think that sort of reinforces the, the distinction and the, the understanding of, of these terms and also the ex eschatological expectations that these people are bringing in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and you've, you've given us such a taste of the, well, just the incredible depth of, of your book. And so my next comment is not a criticism. It's just that as I was reading your book, I kept thinking, wonder what he thinks of Paul's letters. What, wonder how he's going to, you know, and, <laughs> and so I learned that you are writing a new book that is focused on Israel and Paul. And I was thrilled about that. I know that you have uh, an article coming out um, in Harvard Theological Review on Romans 9. Has that come out yet? Uh, it comes out in April, I'm, I'm told. Okay, so okay, wonderful. So you're looking at uh, chapter 9 of Romans, specifically the vessels of wrath, 
um, and and that language. But you're working on this larger project of and of Israel in Paul. So can you give us just a little hint here of, of where your thoughts are going or? Yeah, and and really these two the, these two books are, are have been linked from the beginning. I mean, this process actually started back in two thousand three uh, when I when I really uh, got this larger model and realized, and this was the project that I needed to do. So I've been at this for a long time with you know, and, and had Paul in mind through you know most of it as well. the The larger argument that I have here uh, is that Paul, like his contemporaries understands that Israel is not synonymous with the Jews, that Israel includes, but is not limited to Jews. But then the question is, if Paul believes that, that Jesus is the Messiah who, is, who has come to restore and redeem Israel, then what he's going to be expecting is the restoration of all 12 tribes of Israel, right? That, that's what you would expect him to be proclaiming. And instead he runs around and he's talking about incorporating Gentiles, which has always been a little bit difficult to explain. Why do you have an apocalyptic Jew running around saying, we need to let the Gentiles in and participate in our you know, end time community here? So my argument here is that Paul is a very careful reader of the prophets. Uh, and I think this is post hoc, actually. I think you know, he, he sees uh, Gentiles receiving the spirit, whatever that looks like, uh, and then, you know, he and his communities are looking at that and going, okay, we got to explain this. And when they go back, they look at the prophets and they look at other things in scripture and they say, wait a second, Hosea says to the Northern kingdom, you are not my people and I am not your God. This is, uh, you know, and Jeremiah refers to this as a divorce uh, of, between God and his people, between God and the Northern kingdom. And it's specifically to the North. It's to Israel, not to Judah. And he divorces them. They are not my people. And he says, you are, you know, you are going to be mixed among the nations. And I think Paul reads this and goes, so that's what happened. Who's not my people? Well, not my people is a pretty good synonym for Gentiles. And my argument is that, that Paul understands the bulk of the Northern kingdom as having intermarried among the nations as the prophets had said they would. And so that means that the bulk of Northern, of the Northern kingdom of Israel of those Northern tribes had ceased to be ethnically distinct from the nations as a result. But Paul under, but Paul argues that this does not nullify God's promise to those people and to their descendants, that God has not abandoned his promise to Israel simply because Israel has become indistinct from the nations. Israel still is, uh, the, the promises still apply. And so, uh, my argument in in this book, and I'm I'm hoping they'll let me call it something like uh, Paul and the rest and the resurrection of Israel. My argument uh, from this book is that Paul argues that God is essentially resurrecting Israel by the incorporation of Gentiles who have received the Spirit. Uh, so the union of Jews together with Spirit-filled Gentiles then amounts to a rebuilt twelve tribe Israel, like the whole of Israel, all Israel in Romans eleven twenty six is about that is. Jews together with, and he says, interestingly, in 1125, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, but, you know, there's been a a hardening, you know, for a while until the fullness of the nations comes in, right? And so in this way, all Israel will be saved. What did the fullness of the nations have to do with all Israel? Why would all Israel, why would, and, and, you know, you'd have this kai hutos, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Why is this causally relate? What's the, the logical or causal relationship between the, the, the fullness of the nations coming in and coming into what verse why does that amount to uh, really critically important for the restoration of all Israel the salvation of all Israel. Interestingly, that, that phrase, the fullness of the nations does appear one time in early Jewish literature before Paul. And that's in specifically the Hebrew version of Genesis 48, 19, where the patriarch uh, Jacob crosses his arms and he blesses Ephraim with his right hand on the head of Ephraim. And when he's corrected, he says, oh, no, 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 I know, you know, the older brother's going to be fine. You know, he's going to be a great people too. But Ephraim, he says, you know, the, the younger one, his seed, you know, he will become, he will be greater than his brother. His seed will become the fullness of the nations. Maloha Goyim. Now, this is almost never translated this way, but because it's a bizarre statement, his seed will become the fullness of the nations. 
But if you read that and you go, wait a second, Paul is saying the fullness of the nations has to come in in order for all Israel to be saved. Paul's talking about the restoration of Ephraim, right? This Ephraim and the remainder of the northern tribes have to be included in order for Israel to be complete. And God has gone out to the lifeless, dry bones that have been scattered among the nations and are they are Gentiles. They've become Gentilized. And he is, he is resurrecting his people from those bones in, uh, in a way that, that Paul finds just amazing. Well, I find pretty amazing, too, as you've just described that. that <laughs> when, when is this book coming out? Because uh, I'm very excited to read it. Yeah, it's under review right now. Uh, so, uh, and I'm I'm poking it, you know, making a few, you know, minor tweaks to this or that to, you know, improve wording here and there uh, while I'm waiting on uh, on the referee reports. But, uh, you know, we're expecting to get referee reports back sort of end of the spring, and then uh, I, I'm hoping it's it, it'll be it'll be out within roughly a year. Oh, that would be great, Jason. I hope that it it even comes out faster than that. Is it really? That- it sounds like it will make such a great contribution to what is a very uh, contested topic in certain circles today, uh, often because we bring our own uh, biases or agenda uh, into the conversation. Uh, but you're allowing us to take a look at where Paul might have been and just look at it from uh, from that angle and from the terrific research that you've done that everyone can read uh, in the idea of Israel in the Second Temple period. Thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me uh, in the Biblical World podcast. I've learned so much and just really appreciated uh, everything. And, uh, you know, we are taping this right before the Super Bowl, but I'm not going to ask you to uh, come down on who you think is going to going to win, we'll uh, we'll do that off air, and I'll I'll see where you <laughs> what your thoughts are. <laughs> well, thank you, Lynn. This has been uh, a, a great pleasure, and uh, I I, uh, I really uh, I'm so grateful for your for your scholarship first of all, and uh, and and also leadership of some organizations that I'm a part of, and uh, uh, and also for this uh, this really terrific podcast, which I've learned a lot from. So. Uh, please keep that up. And, uh, and, and thanks so much for that. And thanks for the in- invite to come on. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>